This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Dear radio listeners, what is God like? What kind of God do you worship? And how do you worship Him? These issues Jesus was addressing when He spake to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. He was teaching her that there is only one right answer to the question. In other words, how we think of God and how we worship Him matters. The woman had told Jesus that her people worshipped God in Samaria, and that the Jews thought Jerusalem was the only place in which Jehovah was to be worshipped. Jesus' answer, as recorded in John 4, verses 21-24, through 24, is this, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Like the Samaritan woman, we find ourselves in the school of God's law taught by Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we had a broad overview of the law as a whole and saw that the Ten Commandments are still relevant to our life today. Last week, we examined the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We learned that Jehovah is an all-powerful and loving God, an always good God, and particularly that he is the only God. And therefore he alone must be loved and worshipped. The first commandment regards whom we worship. It forbids us to worship any other being than Jehovah. The second commandment regards how we worship. It reads, as found in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Many Christians consider these words to be distinct from the prohibition of having other gods. Not all do. Jews, Roman Catholics, and Lutherans view the words I quoted as part of the first commandment. Eastern Orthodox, Presbyterians, Reformed, and Baptists generally consider these words to be the second commandment. As I said, this command is different from the first in this way. The first regards whom we worship, the second regards how. 
So as we come to the school of God's law today, we are going to learn that the way in which we worship God must reflect the kind of God he is. He is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. That God is spirit is the central truth about God that the second commandment teaches. Remember that each of the prohibitions in God's law is rooted in the character of God himself. As Jesus makes clear in John 4, verse 24, this commandment teaches that God is spirit. This means that God is not made up of atoms and molecules, of hands and arms and legs and a body like humans or animals. Of what does God consist, if not of anything created? He is spirit. That God is spirit does not suggest that he is not real, he is very real, but he is so different from us and from every other creature. One implication of God being spirit, and one way in which he is different from every other creature, is that he is invisible. Writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, Paul utters a doxology of praise, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. A second implication of the fact that God is spirit is that he is everywhere present. Atoms and molecules, hands and legs, can be only in one place at a time, but God is everywhere at once. For this reason, Paul told the people of Athens in Acts 17 verse 27 that God is not far from every one of us. A third implication of God being spirit is that he cannot be divided into parts. Of course, he cannot be divided into earthly or material parts because he is not a body. But even more, his spiritual virtues and perfections are all united together in him. He is a God of love, holiness, justice, mercy, truth, grace, wisdom, perfect knowledge, and other virtues it is not possible to take one of them away and still have God. He is all of these together, and being spirit, he reveals all of these in harmony with each other. Now each of these points about Jehovah, that he is invisible, that he is everywhere present, and that he is indivisible, must be borne in mind as we understand the command about worshiping God rightly. Because he is invisible, no image could rightly portray him. An image must be made out of wood or stone or some other earthly object, and God is not made of such. Because he is everywhere present, no image may portray him. An image can be only in one place at a time. If God is everywhere present at once, no image can possibly contain his glory. Also, the fact that God's spiritual perfections are all united in him underlies the second commandment. The second commandment speaks of God being jealous and visiting iniquity and showing mercy. That he is jealous means that he is zealous for himself and his glory. As the only God, the most glorious being, 
He has a right to be zealous for himself and his glory. And when he sees us worshiping something that is no God, or worshiping him in a way that does not reflect how he makes himself known to us, he gets jealous for his glory. That he visits iniquity means that he hates our sins and he will punish them. This is really his perfection of justice or righteousness. It is what made necessary his sending Christ into our flesh and to the death of the cross. He is just and right to destroy every sinner on account of our sins. But if he did that, no human could be his friend. So to show that he desires friendship with his people, and at the same time to show that he does not ignore our sins, he sent Jesus Christ into the human flesh, and Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing our sin and its burden and bearing the wrath of God against us. That God shows mercy means that he has compassion on sinners in our miseries and delivers us from them. And that delivering us, he brings us into his own friendship and covenant life. For the moment, the point is that the commandment itself refers to his virtues and perfections and indicates that they are all found in harmony in him. He punishes those who will sin and not turn from sin. He shows mercy to those who love him and find salvation in Jesus Christ. He is not inconsistent. He is not arbitrary. He is God and acts in accord with his being. Now, this instruction about God that is embedded in the second commandment is not just theoretical. It's not just doctrinal. It's not just for the mind or the head. For one thing, this God is glorious, more glorious than any other being. We desire to know him more. For another, we praise and worship him. This is our God who delivered us from bondage to sin, who works in us the life of Jesus Christ, and who brings us into fellowship with him and gives us the promise of life everlasting. And then there is this obvious point. All of these truths about God form the reason for the prohibition found in the second commandment and become the incentive to keep the commandment. From these lessons about God, then, we move to the lessons about images that the commandment gives. And in this section, we must notice two things. First, we may not make images of God. Second, we do not need any image of God other than that which God provides. To be clear, the second commandment is not prohibiting the making of any pictures or sculptures or paintings. Numerous Old Testament passages indicate that the temple and the king's palace had such in them. But God forbids us to make a picture of God or to make a picture of any other creature and call it God or to make a picture and worship it. These are wrong because God is spirit. We cannot capture his glory in a painting or sculpture. The very attempt to do so degrades him who is greater than every other being. So Israel sinned against this commandment when Aaron made a golden calf in the wilderness and Jeroboam set up two golden calves, 
one in Dan and one in Bethel, and told Israel that these pictured Jehovah. How might we be guilty of this sin? What might must we guard against? First, we must guard against trying to imagine God in the form of one who has a head or torso or arms or legs. We do not know what he looks like. And as a spirit, he does not have these. Second, while in his human nature Jesus did have a head, torso, arms, and legs, his humanity is not the full expression of who he is. He is the Son of God, and his glory as the person of the Son of God cannot be expressed in a picture or a sculpture. No picture of Jesus presents him as God. And therefore, every supposed picture of Jesus is misleading and is a misrepresentation of who he truly is. And then more broadly, we must guard against the sin of trying to bring God down to our level. That, after all, is what one does who makes an image, trying to portray God in the way that a human can understand him. We might, therefore, violate the second commandment by trying to portray God as one who is not so different than we are. But God is not on our level. He is far more glorious. He's very different from humans. He doesn't have the sense of humor that humans would have. For instance, his way of thinking about issues and addressing issues is not the way humans would think of, for instance. We must look up to God, put our trust in Him, and know Him from His Word. And that brings us to the second part of the lesson about images. The second commandment reminds us that not only may we not make images of God, but we do not need to. God never gives us an unreasonable prohibition. When he commands us not to make an image of him, he is implicitly reminding us that everything we do need in order to know of him, he has given. First, he has given us the scriptures. While scripture paints no graphic picture of God or Jesus, it does present him as he truly is, a spirit. He presents him as wise and all-knowing, as all-powerful and sovereign, as loving and merciful, righteous and gracious, compassionate and long-suffering, the God who hates sin and punishes it with death, but also who saves sinners in Jesus Christ. Scripture makes known to us the true God. Second, God has given us Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1 verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1 verse 3, that Jesus is the express image of God. By calling Jesus the image of God, the point is not that Jesus' body in any way represented God, but that Jesus was himself truly God and showed in all his person and actions the perfect loveliness of God. Embedded in this truth that Jesus is the image of God are two gospel points. One is that you see that image of God, that depiction of what God is truly like, most clearly 
in Jesus' death on the cross. God is both just and merciful. He hates sin. Were it not for Christ's death, each of us would go to hell. But he shows his great love by sending his only begotten Son to take on himself the sufferings that we deserved and deliver us from them. The other gospel point is that Jesus is raised from the dead and works his new life in us. As he is the image of God, he makes those in whom he lives to be image bearers also. He restores us to the image of God in which Adam was created and which Adam lost in the fall. We read in Romans 8 verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So while we cannot behold Jesus in the body, we can behold him as he makes himself known in Scripture and as he lives in us, his children. What a great incentive to live a godly, holy life, to be God-like. We will never be God. We must not desire to be God but we can begin to be like God in a small way as we manifest his holiness. And when we understand how great a God he is and how small we are, and that even our being like him is just a small beginning, we worship him. That brings us to the third main lesson that the second commandment teaches. We've learned first about God. We've learned secondly why images of God are wrong. But the last main lesson regards worship. For the second commandment regards how we worship God and how we must not worship God. And the main principle for New Testament believers regarding how we worship, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, is this, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. This kind of worship accords with who God is. If God were physical and not spirit, then to worship him in an image would not and could not be wrong. But he is spirit. So Jesus is saying that we must worship him in spirit. And this means that we draw nigh to God in and through the Holy Spirit. But it also means that our worship be spiritual that is, from our heart. We will use our hands, our heart, our mouth, and other body parts in worshiping God, but above all, our worship must be a spiritual kind of worship. If we think that we've pleased God then by going to his house and sitting for an hour in a church, that during that hour we gave some offerings, we sang songs, we participated in worship activities, but our soul and spirit did not participate in worship, then we're mistaken. Our worship must be, first of all, from the heart. And we must worship in truth. That is, our worship must be regulated by a true understanding of who God is and by an understanding of what he commands in Scripture. We may not worship a false god. We may not worship in a false way. We must worship rightly. To worship him in spirit and in truth is to worship as he commands in the Bible. 
This applies first to the nature of worship. What really is worship? Is it praising God? Well, it certainly is that, but even more fundamentally, worship is fellowship with God. It is the most intimate form of friendship with God. In worship, he speaks to us in his word and by his spirit, and we speak to him in song and in prayer. In other words, just as Israel needed to go to the temple to worship, so we need to go to church to worship. Some get the impression that to worship God in spirit means that going to church is optional. We can worship him as easily while we are alone, perhaps while we are walking on a lovely nature trail, or contemplating the beauty of God's creation somewhere else. The issue for now isn't whether we can worship him there. The question is, are these a substitute for worshiping in church? And the answer is no. Worship, public worship, is a conversation and fellowship between God and his redeemed people. And the deepest experience of this worship happens when the redeemed gather as a group to worship the way God commands in Scripture. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth then also applies to the elements of worship. Scripture indicates that in public worship we read and explain Scripture and hear the gospel preached. That the congregation join in singing. That there be prayers and taking of offerings. Scripture requires that the sacraments be administered as part of worship. In other words, because God is great and glorious, exalted and sovereign, he determines how we worship. And so a common idea today is exposed as being wrong. That common idea being that we may do whatever we want in worship as long as what we do is motivated by love for him. That is not true. God is not pleased with any activity in worship. He determines how we are to worship him. And finally, Worshiping God in spirit and in truth also applies to our personal participation in worship. Did you go to church today? Or will you? Why did you go? What did you expect to receive when you went to church? Did you expect to be entertained? What did you intend to give? Did you intend to give as little as possible of your soul and heart? We do sometimes think that that is what worship is all about. But it is not. We bring an empty soul, acknowledging our sin. And as we worship the glorious God in spirit and in truth, God fills that empty soul with his grace and by his word. And we praise him for being the one, only, true God. That is the keeping of the second commandment on earth. That was Christ's keeping of the second commandment while he lived on earth and in heaven. That is the kind of worship that we will give him perfectly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, so much of our worship is imperfect. If not done wrongly from an outward viewpoint, then done by merely going through the actions and not done from our heart and from our soul. We ask thy forgiveness for that. Cover our sins in the blood of Christ. 
and give us to worship Thee rightly, in spirit and in truth, all the days of our life. For Jesus' sake, Amen. The Gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.